My name is Matthew Quick, and my novel is We Are the Light. In 2008, Matthew Quick hit the literary scene with his debut novel, The Silver Linings Playbook, and since that time had published seven more titles. And then, in 2018, he decided to embrace sobriety, and with it came a crippling case of writer's block. After years of struggle, Quick ultimately turned to Jungian analysis, and what ended up healing his writer's block also provided the structure for his newest novel, We Are the Light. The novel explores grief in the aftermath of a tragic mass shooting and with it, the transformative power of art. I recently spoke with Matthew Quick about his new novel and more. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. We Are the Light is an epistolary novel and it opens with a letter to Carl from Lucas. And maybe we can do an overview of the book by starting there. Who are Lucas and Carl, and why is one reaching out to the other through a letter? So Lucas is my protagonist, Lucas Goodgame, and he's a middle-aged man who has experienced an unimaginable tragedy in a movie house. And at the time, he was in Jungian analysis, and his analyst is Carl. And right after the tragedy, unfortunately, Lucas receives a letter from Carl saying that he can no longer be his analyst and that he's, he's not going to be practicing anymore. So when Lucas needs Carl the most in his life, he's not there. And so Lucas decides that very heroically, in my opinion, that he's going to try to woo his analyst back. And so he starts to write him these letters to keep his analyst abreast of what's going on in his life and also to try to earn the right to have an analyst again. And there are these kind of heartbreaking love letters that he writes to his analyst because he's in so much pain. Can you talk to me a little bit about Jungian analysis? Is it similar to therapy? I mean, and you have your own experience with this type of analysis, correct? Yes, I've been in Jungian analysis for a little over two years now. And when I wrote the novel, I had been in analysis for a year. So, you know, I've never been in any other type of therapy. So this is all I know. I've talked to other people who have. From what I gather, what separates Jungian analysis from maybe other approaches is it's, it's a really deep dive into the psyche. And so it's less interested in, in taking care of symptoms than getting to the root problem of things. And so it's an experience that is not a quick fix whatsoever. In many ways, it's about breaking down the ego and breaking down maybe what we call the false self and getting back to the core of who we really are, which Jung called individuation. Um, And so it's basically reprogramming who you are as a human being, so to speak. And we do that by, um, you know, talking about what's going on in our life, taking a very symbolic attitude to the world and how we see it, and really having a, a deep philosophical conversation about the way that we're constructing narrative and the way that we're approaching stories. I want to talk a little bit about another character, Eli, and his relationship with Lucas, because, you know, they're they're not related, but it seems like Lucas has a more paternal relationship with Eli than either Eli has in his own family or even Lucas, for that matter. So can you talk to me about their relationship and, you know, does it save Eli or does it save Lucas? I mean, it, it seems a little bit reciprocal as well. 
Well, you know, just to put it in context, Lucas, before the tragedy, is a, a high school counselor. He, he counsels and works with teenagers um, experiencing mental health problems, and he's seeing Eli. And so after the tragedy, the irony is he, he does the same thing that's done to him. So Lucas's analyst abandons him, and Lucas also stops going into school and working with the kids. And Eli shows up at his house one day and almost forces this relationship and I talk a little bit about in the novel of what Robert Bly calls father hunger. And you have these men that are really craving, you know, a father figure. You know, Lucas really misses his analyst. Eli's never had a father figure. And so they try to figure out a way to deal with that father hunger together. And so, of course, Lucas decides to take on Eli and, and try to get him through this really horrific experience of the tragedy of the town. And in doing that, I think Lucas learns a little bit about what he needs as well. You just put their relationship into context, and, and maybe we should even put more things into context, because I failed to ask you, like, can you give our listeners maybe a brief description of the book, and maybe we can understand even who Eli is and why he is struggling with what happened? Sure. So, um the inciting incident, if you will, in the novel is uh, a, a young man walks into a movie house with guns and, and, and starts shooting. Um, and there's this tragedy. And this young man is named Jacob, and it's Eli's older brother. Um, so afterward, the town, even though Eli had nothing to do with the shooting whatsoever, they shun him. Um, and they, they project a lot of shame onto him, and no one will talk to him. And he is just, he doesn't know what to do. You know, he has all these conflicting emotions. He feels guilty because maybe he could have done something to help his brother. But basically, he's just become the scapegoat for the town. And so Lucas decides that he's going to resurrect this boy and bring him back in and make him whole and bring him and make him part of the town again is really what he wants to do. You know, because the town shuns him, and because Lucas is actually, you know, taking some time away from his job helping young people at the high school because his wife was one of the victims of this violence, the two are brought together to work on a senior project, if you will. And it's, it's, they've decided to make a movie. And it's, it's a monster movie. So talk to me about the metaphor of a monster movie and the restorative power of art. Yeah, so um, Eli is is very interested in monster movies. He has a, a passion. He used to watch them with his brother. And so he, he decides, because he doesn't want to go to school anymore, you know, Lucas comes up with this idea of creating a senior project. And so I was playing with the idea of, you know, what is a story and controlling our own narrative and also redeeming ourselves through story. But of course, everybody is looking at Eli as a monster, as the brother of the shooter. And Lucas, for reasons that you find out at the end of the novel, feels very much like a monster. Um, and so they create this monster suit that they're going to, you know, it's this wild creation. And they kind of externalize these feelings. These feelings that were very internal become something that we can see. In Jungian terms, we'd say that's, that's raising it to the level of consciousness. And so there's a visual manifestation of these very complicated, dark feelings and putting it out there. And of course, through the movie making, you know, they humanize this monstrous character who actually ends up becoming a, a hero in the film. And so it's in some ways a little on the nose, but it, it's this kind of beautiful metaphor for going into darkness 
in the Jungian work I do, it's called shadow work. You know, you find the things that you don't want to talk about, the things that you're, you're hiding in shadow. And Jung would say that there's gold in the shadow, you know, that you bring it to consciousness and that sometimes the things that we fear the most are the things that we need most. And so Eli is afraid of the town, but yet by doing this art project and bringing the town, that, that's also the thing that redeems him. So by presenting the monster to the town, the town can accept the monster, and then we have all of this healing that takes place throughout the novel. So you just mentioned darkness, and Lucas means bringer of light in Latin. Maybe just talk to me about the meaning of Lucas and why you chose that name. Well, the, the original title wasn't We Have a Light, but I was very much thinking about darkness and light. I was in a point, you know, I had gone through this process of getting sober and started in 2018, um, which immediately launched a, a long bout of writer's block that took me to a, a very dark place, which is why I entered into Jungian analysis. And I think I was really searching for light. And so, you know, again, to find the light, you've got to go into the darkness. You know, Jung talks about this a lot. And so the character of Lucas, yes, you know, he's, he's this guy that brings the light, but he has to go to this horrifically dark place in order to do that. Not only what happens to him in the theater during the shooting, but, but the emotional depths he has to mind afterwards through the healing and the grieving process. But I wanted to make sure that the reader knew immediately that this wasn't going to be uh, some type of very downer book. Like the book is really about hope and light. And I think that Lucas is embodying that. And, you know, he's kind of the torch that leads us through this, this dark passage to this, this great experience of light at the end of the novel. You know, the copy I read is the advanced reader copy. And, and in the front of the novel, there's a letter from you. And you're very open about your own experience with anxiety and, and sobriety. And you also mentioned your male friendships. So this novel was also like an exploration of masculinity and manhood. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me about male friendships, either Lucas's or yours or, or both. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's something that's become incredibly important to me in the second half of life. And I think I grew up at a time when, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when men were supposed to act a certain way, a lot of my relatives were war veterans. They were not men who said, I love you. They were not men who hugged you. They expressed their love in other ways, but I think I was really hungry for that. I remember before high school every day, I would go to my grandparents' house to have breakfast, and my grandfather was a World War II vet very gruff man, you know, Republican, you know, fundamentalist Christian, but he would hold my hand every morning while he prayed. And that was pretty much the only time a man would ever touch me. And I remember how important it was to hold my grandfather's hand. And so when I was getting sober and, uh, you know, going through that experience, some of my male friends really showed up in simple and subtle ways. Uh, my brother and I started having an hour-long conversation every Saturday morning. My friend Matt here in OBX and I started having lunch and we would just talk. The writer Nicholas Butler and I started to have a conversation once a month, a two-hour conversation about writing, about what it means to be a man in America. Uh, my friend Kent and I started a movie club. And these men, I think, could sense that I was suffering. And they showed up every week in a way to hold me in a way that let me know that they cared about me. And that was incredibly healing for me. And so through the novel, in many ways, Lucas has these men show up for him. And his principal and best friend is a man by the name Isaiah. 
and Isaiah often prays for uh, Lucas. He, Isaiah is a religious man, and, and he touches him when he prays. Like they, they touch foreheads, or he puts his hands on, on his arms. And, and the, these simple acts of just a man letting another man know that he loves him and that he's there for him and that he'll hold him in ways that I think are wonderfully positive. I think are really important today. And we live in a time when we're always talking about toxic masculinity, which is a problem. And we need to deal with that. We need to sort that out. But I don't think men are told often enough how we want them to act and what is positive masculinity. We don't have conversations about that. And the men that I know and that I hang out with are really good-hearted men that are eager to participate and contribute in beautiful ways. And sometimes I think these men aren't, aren't sure which ways society wants them to contribute because we're not having enough conversations about this. And so I really wanted to illustrate through the novel like ways that men could act in loving ways where they would put themselves into the world, they would exert themselves and put themselves into the world that in a way that benefits everyone, that doesn't take anything away from people, but produces these wonderful things that are beneficial for everyone. And there's ripple effects to this as well, because Eli is nurturing and caring for Lucas, he's able to care for Eli. And in turn, they're able to create an art project that cares for the whole community. So we see how this positive masculinity is not just between these men, but it goes out and forth into the community and really helps and transforms that community in a really wonderful and beautiful way. Okay, so this book, it's an exploration of how different people process grief because, you know, Eli and Lucas tried to be healers. You know, some folks withdraw from society. Sandra becomes a political advocate. You know, how did writing a book about grief impact you? And I wonder if it granted you a greater understanding of humanity. While I was writing it, I'm an intuitive creative. And so I don't, I don't think about that so much why I'm writing. But in retrospect, as I kind of psychoanalyze myself after the book is done, I think that I was really grieving the loss of who I was after I got sober. You know, there was this kind of Matthew Quick that existed up until I was about, I don't know, 45. And then there's this new person that emerged in the second half of life. And so I think symbolically, I, there was this very traumatic thing that was happening inside of, of me that I was processing, again, symbolically throughout the novel. I think what I learned about the grieving process is that it's very tempting, especially as a man, to lone wolf it, you know, when we have complicated problems. And, and I, I tried that at first, especially in early sobriety. But I think it, that we need, you know, human beings are pack animals and we need our pack. We need our tribe. And, and sometimes that, that takes a little bit of humility. And sometimes that takes a little bit of trust to open up and let the other people in our lives play an active role in our healing process. And for me, especially the way that I was raised, that was incredibly hard for me. It was incredibly hard to let other people take care of me and to love me. And so I think through writing the book, I realized um, not only how important that is, but how, how much I was craving that personally. And as I looked at all of these people who were showing up for me in my darkest time, I realized that it wasn't enough to just offer love and help to other people but it's very important to be humble enough to accept that and to realize that when we're in a dark period, that, that we need those things and that it's okay to do that. We Are the Light, it will be published on November 1st, and it is the top pick 
for the Indie Next list. For listeners, you've heard me talk about this before, but Indie Next is, it's put out by the American Booksellers Association and independent booksellers all over the country nominate their favorite books coming out for the month. And this means that, you know, you have a lot of independent booksellers who have read this and who have loved it and who have committed to, you know, you go to any independent bookstore and you look at the little flyer and We Are the Light is going to be right there on the cover. Talk to me about how this makes you feel and when did you learn that it was going to be the top pick? It makes me feel wonderful. I mean, it's it was surprising. I've never had, you know, this is my ninth novel and that's never happened before. So it was, it was beautiful. And, you know, I, I think in my dark period uh, when I wasn't writing and I was blocked, again, I, I, I lone wolfed it and I kind of stepped out of the book community for a long time. And when I came back, I was... I was nervous. I didn't know if people would accept me back. You know, I disappeared for a long time. And so when I found out that people were embracing it, it, it really was profoundly healing, to be honest with you. And my editor, Jofi, did a great job of reaching out and sharing with me a lot of the notes that came in. And I, I was floored. And, you know, to put it in context, I, I went to Denver in the end of uh, September to speak with booksellers. And I was really nervous because it was the first event that I had done in person since I got completely sober. And I gave a speech and uh, it was kind of interesting. I followed my old creative writing teacher, Justin Cronin. So it was kind of a full circle moment for me. He has a new book coming out as well, which is great. And I gave this speech about, you know, being alone and writing this book in darkness and getting sober and trusting people again. And it was just so wonderful because so many independent booksellers came up to me afterwards and just shared wonderful stories about their own lives. And I remember going down to the floor um, where all the books were on display and see it teeming with all of these booksellers who were trying to pick out the perfect books for their community to deliver the soul medicine that was needed for their community. And, and as I walked around and people continued to come up to me and talk to me about what I had said and ask me about my book, I said, this is what I, I wrote about. This is what the book is about. It's about art and community. It's about people taking care of each other. It's about people looking for the soul medicine that their communities need to heal. And it was just this wonderful experience of feeling, oh, I'm back, like I'm home, like I'm in the community. And like, there are these people that care. And I think that so often we look in the world and we say, where's the compassion? You know, where's the love? And then you walk into a room full of indie booksellers and say, oh, here it is. You know, this, this is where it is. Why don't we have more cameras on this? You know, why aren't we focusing on this? And so I, I am glad that the book was a match for them. And I feel deeply honored by that. You know, typically I ask authors if they have a hope for the book, if they have a hope for readers of the book, what they might take away from it. But it sounds like it's already being embraced. It, it's already, you know, booksellers are going to be putting this book into the hands. They're going to be matchmakers with people who come in looking for something like this. Why do you think we, and I'm using the we, the collective we, why do you think we need a book like this right now? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I really do believe that men need to be told at this time that they are worthy of love and that they are capable of loving other people. I think that that is a message that is sorely needed. I also think we live in a time too where we're trying to correct a lot of wrongs from the past and rightly so, but oftentimes we, we rush to these polarized places and we rush to these places of being very interested in power 
and those are really important discussions to have. But I think that my book is really a book about love. It's not about power. It's about creating spaces in our community where we just try to love each other, regardless of who we are or who we voted for or what we believe. Not that those things aren't important because they are. I think there's a place for politics and I think there's a place for discussions of power. But I also think, and sometimes maybe we forget this, that we also need discussions of love to be happening simultaneously to balance those two things out. Young famously said that, uh, and I'll get the quote wrong, but he said, where there is a, a will to power, there's no will to love. And when there's a will to love, there's no will to power. Because if you love someone, you don't wanna have power over them. Um, one is the shadow of the other. And so in the novel, you have Lucas, who is you know, very interested in love, and you have Sandra, who's very interested in becoming governor of Pennsylvania. They're the shadow of each other, and that's why they're so curious about each other, and they keep trying to win each other over. And I think that we need both of those things to be happening simultaneously. And I think we live in a time when we, we focus on one over the other, and they're both important, I think. Well, the book is We Are the Light. Matthew Quick, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. That was Matthew Quick, author of the book We Are the Light, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.